0: Mark chapter 12, Mark chapter 12, I feel supported and heard, Mark chapter 12, we only have maybe a dozen messages left in the Gospel of Mark, we're in the Passion Week, the week of Jesus' final life and the passage before us today, Mark 12, verse 28 through 37, is a stunner. Uh, Let me show you what it says and begin just by reading it. The title of this sermon is, Are You Almost a Christian? Are You Almost a Christian? Question mark. Matthew, I'm sorry, Mark 12, verse 28. One of the scribes came and heard them arguing and recognizing that he had answered them well, talking about the interaction that Jesus had just had with the Sadducees about the resurrection. And he said, you don't understand the Scriptures, you don't understand the power of God. He affirmed the resurrection. That's what that's a reference to. So, back to verse 28. Recognizing that he had answered them well, this scribe asks Jesus, what commandment is the foremost of all? And Jesus answered him. The foremost is, hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one Lord, and you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. The second is this, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other commandment greater than these. The scribes said to him, Teacher, you are right. You've truly stated that the Lord is one and there is no one else besides Him. And to love Him with all the heart and with all the understanding with all the strength and to love one's neighbor as himself is much more than all burnt offerings and sacrifices. When Jesus saw that He had answered intelligently, He said to him, You are not far from the kingdom of God. After that, no one would venture to ask Him any more questions. And Jesus began to say, as He taught in the temple, how is it that the scribes say that the Christ is the Son of David? David himself said in the Holy Spirit, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies beneath your feet. David himself calls him Lord. So, in what sense is he his son? And the large crowd enjoyed listening to him. This is the very word of the living God. Are you almost a Christian? A young pastor by the name of Matthew Mead wrote a book that you can still get your hands on today. You can find it free online even called The Almost Christian Discovered. In that book he says, the heart of man is the greatest imposter and cheat in the world. The heart of man is the greatest imposter and cheat in the world. As he, in this kind of sermon series turned book, talks about the marks of a false professor of Christ, someone who thinks they're a Christian but actually isn't, Uh, the repeated refrain occurs in the book. You may be such and such, but you are almost but a Christian. Over and over again, he keeps reminding his readers that you may be Uh, fastidious, you may be lawful, you may be um, concerned about godliness, but you might yet only and almost be a Christian. Uh, He defines Christian as a disciple of Jesus Christ, one who believes in and follows Jesus Christ. And his thesis is there are very many in the world that are almost and yet but almost Christians. And it's that Concept, that most important question that comes to my mind as a way to understand what's happening in this final controversy in a day full of questions and controversies that Jesus has been facing repeatedly. The Sanhedrin, the ruling body of the Jewish people, have come to Jesus over and over again throughout the day. Uh, accusing him, questioning him, trying to trap him. He he began with that parable about the vine growers and the mistreatment of the representatives that this this landowner sent to the, the kingdom, a parable that indicted the nation of Israel for its rejection of God's Messiah. And from there, after cleansing the temple, they brought all these questions. Uh, The Pharisees asking Him about taxes and trying to to trap Him. Uh, The Sadducees trying to undermine His understanding of the resurrection with a complicated question about marriage. And then Instead of a group of individuals, one of the scribes, sometimes your Bible calls them lawyers. They're not like, you know, trying to get a class action against Roundup or uh, worried if, if, you know, you're, you're being cheated by your insurance company when you got bit by a dog or, or whatever. Not that kind of of lawyer no disrespect intended towards any potential future lawyers in the room but not that kind of lawyer they were experts in the law meaning the torah meaning the the hebrew scriptures these were the ones who could give you answers to your theological questions who would know chapter and verse of the entire Old Testament, understand how rabbis had interpreted it, understand any kind of manuscript issues in the language. These were the absolute theologians of their day, uh, experts in the law, call them scribes, call them lawyers. One of them, after hearing Jesus make easy work of the Sadducees. And remember, the Sadducees were. Uh, held on to a kind of a false doctrine that the Pharisees would have rejected, but they're lined up right now in their animosity against Jesus. But they they believed that there was no resurrection, that death was it and everything, which goes against traditional Jewish understanding of the afterlife. And so when Jesus makes easy work of the Sadducees and defeats their view, uh, we start to see that the idea that Jesus versus Judaism that that I think a lot of people have when they read the New Testament isn't really that accurate. Uh, Jesus and Judaism are are lined up in so many ways and in the most true ways. Jesus was Jewish. Jesus held the law in high regard. Jesus understood and, and loved the Old Testament scriptures. And The passage in front of us where this individual scribe resonates with what Jesus is saying is such an interesting interaction, and it teaches us something transcendent about our own relationship to God. Mindful that the heart of man is the greatest cheat and imposter in the world, And with this man as a bit of a case study, and the culmination of this entire day of of questioning before us, it's a good time to, to see how Jesus lands this whole thing. And the question of, are you almost a Christian, is a question that's relevant for someone who finds so much resonance with Jesus, so much agreement with Jesus, but has not yet become all the way convinced that he is the Messiah. That's what we see unfolding this passage. We'll look at it under two headings, and we'll look at them briefly, but I think enough to understand what's going on here. First, verses 28 to 34, their great agreement, speaking of Jesus and the scribe, their great agreement, and then verses 35 to 37, the vital difference, the great agreement and the vital difference. First, their great agreement. Look how close together they are. Uh, after all the arguments, verse 28, and recognizing that Jesus had answered them well, he's affirming what Jesus has just said. They're in scribe territory. This is taking place in the temple. All these controversies, all these questions are in the Pharisees, the Sadducees, and the scribes, and the Sanhedrin's home turf. Jesus is on their territory, and he's answering questions, and at least one of them, undoubtedly representative of many of them, who were uh, law-keeping, theology-studying, Yahweh-worshiping devotees, Uh, to Israel and her covenant with God comes to Jesus and sees that Jesus is in great agreement with what they've taught. And so he wants to ask Jesus a question about, uh, really a common question in Judaism in these days, which is, what's the most important or the most significant command What's the one that sticks out the most? And so he approaches not with the hostility and entrapment that we saw with the Pharisees and the Sadducees in their questions, but with a kind of resonant, amicable, friendly point of agreement. And not trying to denounce Jesus or undermine Jesus, but ask Jesus a respectful question that would have been, common for theologians to talk about. How could you summarize the whole law? One rabbi was asked to give a summary of the Torah while standing on one foot, which is easy for you, but as you get older, you lose your ability to stand on one foot for some reason unless you do core conditioning, as I do. So, (laughs) wasn't a joke. So, but that was a common question, and so the idea is: is how do you how do you summarize the Old Testament? You know, it's 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 huge. The Torah, five books, the Pentateuch, uh, which the Sadducees were only about those five, or the entirety of it, which is most of, of practicing Judaism was, was held it all together. And and how do you sum it all up? There's six hundred and thirteen. I think is the number, 613 commands in the Old Testament. If you you parse them all out, stuff about not trimming the corner of your beards, stuff about dietary laws, restrictions on the Sabbath. Uh, this is the Ten Commandments blown up into all the minutiae. And if you gather every Old Testament imperative, there's 613 of them. And so you've seen Jesus even talk about the weightier matters and the lighter matters. Those are most significant, most Important, most uh, triage related. And that was common for rabbis to do that. And so his question isn't a trap. It's a good question that highlights the great agreement between the rabbi Jesus and the rabbis of his day. They were trained. He was not. They were educated. He was not. They were official and respected. He was traveling and uh, against the the current systems, outside of the current systems. But there's deep agreement here. And the way Jesus answers this question about which commandment is most significant, which commandment supersedes... uh, The word uh, panton is here. It's the word for all. Uh, Out of all of the commands, all of these 613 in the rabbinic tradition count, 365 prohibitions and 248 positive commands, all of them being different degrees of heaviness and lightness And this question being brought to Jesus is a respectful question, a common question, an excellent question, and lots of rabbis had answered it before. In two decades before Jesus' birth, a rabbi by the name of Hillel summarized the Torah with kind of a golden rule in reverse. He said, what would you... What you would not want done to you, do not do to your neighbor. That is the entire Torah. Everything else is interpretation. So this isn't an unusual question. It's not a trap. It's not an uncommon question. Uh, This rabbi, a hundred years after Jesus' time, uh, took Leviticus 19.8 as the summary of the entire Torah, saying you shall love your neighbor as yourself is the full Uh, message of the Torah boiled down to uh, just a pithy thesis statement. And so that's the kind of question, a question that was seeking agreement, a question that was seeking uh, common ground, a question that was affirming that Jesus wasn't completely out of nowhere, but he—he so much of his teaching recognized the authority of the Old Testament. And so this scribe asks, what is foremost, what is first, what's in the front place in in summarizing the law. And Jesus' answer in one way is commonplace. He chooses to answer the question in its first kind of answer as very, I mean, an answer that any rabbi would have given. I mean, Jesus wasn't pulling some Esoteric, weird text out of the Old Testament to surprise them. Like the most important thing, it's the shellfish. You know, it's not something that's like gonna, gonna blow their minds. He chooses the Shema, the here, O Israel, the Lord your God is, the Lord is one. Uh Shema, uh Israel, Adonai. They, they say it in the morning, they say it at night. it's the John 316 of the Old Testament. It's the most famous passage in the Old Testament. It's what every little kid who who was part of Israel, they knew this prayer. They they held it up at Israelite basketball association games. I mean this is this is this is the big verse. So They didn't have basketball yet. James Namesmith was... But you know, I'm sorry, that was offensive. So, basketball. Why am I talking about basketball? Oh, so we're talking about the... This is an answer that's easy and obvious, right? It's it's the Shema. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one Lord, and you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, your soul, and your strength. And then Jesus adds mind, which could be Jesus either working with the Septuagint or kind of adding some interpretation, which would have been common, and it shows Jesus' authority potentially, but it's really not a controversial answer. It's the answer that says the most important thing is, in repeating that word, all, 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 it's to fully and totally love God. Four times in verse 30, that word, All is repeated with all your heart, all your soul, all your mind, all your strength. A singular and all-surpassing devotion to, affection for, commitment to the God of Israel is the most important commandment. This is why the Ten Commandments are are ordered the way they are with with God word on the first tablet that there is only one God and you're not to bow down to any other gods. This makes sense, Jesus' answer. And the Shema, Hebrew word that means to hear, is uh, the recitation that every Uh, obedient, pious Jew would know. This is the Lord's Prayer for the Jewish people. This is the Apostles' Creed. This is John 3.16. Nothing controversial here, nothing groundbreaking, but something so important and so vital and so right. And it's something that people don't understand today, especially those who, who criticize the Bible or critique Christianity from a point of misunderstanding. They'll usually want to go shellfish on you when they think about the Old Testament because they don't know anything about the Old Testament. Unless they have Jewish friends or something like that, or, I mean, they, they probably only would think of you know, episodes of violence. Or something that they heard about the Old Testament that does not characterize the actual old testament jesus answer is an adequate and accurate assessment of Old testament teaching it's not just deuteronomy six four in other words it's all over the bible Deuteronomy four verse thirty five says, just to give you the If somebody asked you, so you're a Christian, do you believe in the Old Testament? Like, all it's got, like, you know, don't eat bugs and, and, you know, prohibitions of all kinds and uncleanness. I I, I don't know anything about it. What is it about? You could show them Deuteronomy 4, verse 35, which says, To you it was shown that you might know that the Lord, He is God. That there is no other besides Him. This is in Moses' sermon where he talks about why the people were brought to the place they've been brought, why the revelation they've been given. It's so that they might know God, that He's the only one true God. Jesus' passage. Deuteronomy 6.4, the Shema, hear O Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your might. These words which I'm commanding you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your sons and shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise up. This is the central message of the Old Testament. Go to a weird book like Leviticus. And and what would you find in a a book that we would think is is strange and and weird and bloody and scary like Leviticus? But you go to Leviticus 19.18 and it says, you are to keep my statutes. You are to keep my statutes. Verse 18, you shall not take vengeance, nor bear any grudge against the sons of your people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. I mean, we're tempted to, to be distracted by verse 19, which I started to read to you. That's about not mixing two different kinds of cattle together. But that's not the main emphasis of Old Testament Scripture. The main emphasis is exactly what we're seeing here. It is There's one God, and you are to be completely and totally and affectionately committed to Him. For Samuel 15.22 continues to prove that this is the message of the entire Old Testament. It says, Samuel says, to Saul after his episode of disobedience, has... The Lord has much delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord. Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice and to heed than the fat of rams. And you say, well, there's so much stuff in the Bible about sacrifices and and laws and offerings, but the point behind all of them is anyone who reads the Old Testament carefully could see is God is at the center of your life. He occupies the place of first devotion. He's the one that requires our worship, our attention. All the Bible, all the Old Testament agrees with this same theme. You can go to the great prophet Isaiah. Chapter 45, and I could read you verses all day, but I won't because there's a shepherds conference meeting. 45.21 says, Declare and set forth your case. Indeed, let them consult together. Who has announced this from of old? Who has long since declared to? Is it not I, the Lord? And there is no other God besides me, a righteous God and a Savior. There is none except me. This exclusive allegiance to Yahweh can be shown to be the message of the Scriptures. Jesus knows the Scriptures. His knowledge of the Scriptures is thorough. And so when He says that the point of all of it is love for God and then attaches to it, love your neighbor as yourself, he really is providing a great summary. Now, the Shema, the the exclusive worship of God, is the unexpected part. Now, Jesus does something here that is not controversial, but wise and incredibly insightful, is he's asked what's the most foremost command. And Jesus says, it's these two. Now, that's Rabbi Jesus being super smart because he was asked, which one is it? And Jesus says, it's these two. Multiple choice exams don't work like that. It breaks the Scantron machine. But Jesus doesn't care about your Scantron. He is giving the accurate answer. And his answer is so wise and biblical, not just because it's a great summary of the Old Testament, but because he's proving something. You cannot claim to love God and not have regard for those who God has made. And so it brings us into the picture. And those horizontal relationships have to be impacted by that vertical relationship with God. Jesus doesn't separate the two tablets of the law. He brings them together with this incredibly insightful answer by saying, the Shema, love the Lord your God with all your heart and soul and all your strength and all your mind. And the second is, love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other commandment greater than these. Refusing to speak only of a kind of heartfelt affection and allegiance to the one true God without also highlighting the love for neighbor as a necessary outflowing. This avoids any kind of pietistic, mystical religion that is only concerned with God and has no regard for the world around us. And this also destroys any kind of conception of a of a religion that is so socially concerned and worldly obsessed that it does not have regard for God's will and God's ways. Jesus brings true Judaism and the one true religion into perfect focus by showing the love of God and the love of humanity are needfully and necessarily combined. So if the Shema, John 3.16, was Jesus's kind of obvious answer that any rabbi would have given. The brilliance of Jesus is on display as he brings both of these answers together and bringing the worship of God and the relationship of God's creatures into harmonious focus. And that focus has never changed. Love of God and love of neighbor is true religion 1 John 4:11 We love because he first loved us if anyone says i love god yet hates his brother he is a liar new testament christianity could be summarized likewise in its horizontal and vertical relationship and so what is the response of this scribe to jesus's uh, very i mean accurate and Clear answer, but incredibly wise combination of these two things. Verse 32, the scribe says to him, well, you are right. And it's here where we start to realize there is some dissonance because you have an expert in the law in his temple domain, home court advantage, saying to God... That's correct. Good answer. You pass the fifth grade. It's so that's where it's a little bit. You feel the tension when the scribe says, Right, teacher, you've truly stated it, nailed it, gold star. He expands and, and agrees and says, He is one. There is no one else besides him. And to love him with all the heart and with all the understanding and with all the strength and to one love's neighbor as himself. And then he even puts forth a little bit extra here in the context of the temple where all those sacrifices, especially on the Day of Atonement, w- would take place and blood would flow and fill the brooks and the, and the creeks and the rivers of Jerusalem with, with red blood because of all the thousands upon thousands of animal sacrifices. All of the attention on atonement that rightfully took place the scribe even says these matters of loving God and loving one's neighbor as yourself is more than all burnt offerings and sacrifices. Now, again, this is not groundbreaking stuff because that's what the prophet Hosea said in Hosea 6.6 6, is uh, those that exact concept. It's not offerings that God is ultimately after, but he's after the heart of his people. And the scribe underlines what Jesus says and even furthers it a bit by saying it's much more, it's more significant, it's more important than all burnt offerings and sacrifices. He has an advocate. He has an ally. He has resonant wisdom with the rabbi Jesus. And it's not all conflict. It's not all traps. There is some of the followers of the teaching of the Old Testament who are closely aligned with Jesus' teachings, who are very interested in what Jesus has to say, who recognize in him authority and wisdom that is out of this world who who are fascinated by his miracles and we've seen them throughout the gospels Nicodemus comes to Jesus by night with genuine inquiry to find out who he is repeatedly various disciples of John the Baptist and other religious leaders have have come into Jesus's followers and asked questions and And inquired about what Jesus is teaching. The interest has been high. And some, like this dear scribe, sees that he has much in common with the Lord. Much in agreement with loving God and loving others. Much in the prioritizing of religion that is true and heartfelt and impactful in this world. And not caught up with secondary matters and missing the very heart of truth. And so he sees in Jesus a kindred spirit, a theologian with which he can agree that he wants more attachment to and attention from. And it's there. That Jesus has a potential ally, an ally that is powerful, an ally that is well-connected, an ally that could perhaps be of great help to Jesus in this week in Jerusalem, where so many other religious leaders are so violently opposed to Jesus and plotting against Jesus. Here is a man who is with Jesus and understands Jesus, but then Jesus says to him, A word of affirmation given to us by Mark, verse 34. When Jesus saw that He had answered intelligently, after this scribe passes judgment and affirms the teaching of Jesus, Jesus then passes judgment on the scribe. Mark says, Jesus saw that He was right. But the scribe is not Jesus' authority. Jesus is the scribe's authority. Jesus is the sovereign authority of heaven and earth. And he makes a declaration on this man that is at the same time so hopeful and at the same time so disastrous. And it's a declaration that I want Jesus to speak over you today. Listen to what Jesus says. You are not far from the kingdom of God. What a thing to say. The kingdom of God in its fullest expression is the new heavens, the new earth, the restoration of Edenic glory. The kingdom of God is is where God reigns without any opposition. It is the throne of God, the hand of God, the sovereignty of God, the culmination of God's plan, and it's God's glory being experienced and covering the entire face of the earth. That's the fullest expression of the kingdom of God. You can call it final salvation You can call it the eschaton. You can call it heaven. And Jesus tells the scribe, you're close. And with that word, he shows you that you can be close, but not in that you could almost be a Christian. A knowledge of the Scripture doesn't make you a Christian. A religious family, your dad being a pastor, doesn't make you a Christian. Being involved here, even acquiring church membership, doesn't make you a Christian. Agreeing with so much of what Jesus teaches and, and seeing in Him a lot of good stuff and, and wisdom doesn't make you a Christian. Believing in God doesn't make you a Christian. Believing that there's an evil world all around us doesn't make you a Christian. Being conservative doesn't make you a Christian. Having theological debates doesn't make you a Christian. All those things could just simply be almost Christian. And churches are full of almost Christians. Because ultimately, it's not your Word that makes you a Christian. It's God's Word. It's not going to be this man's assessment of the situation that will bring him all the way into the kingdom. His proximity to the kingdom, on one hand, is a wonderful thing. We've encountered others in Mark's gospel who had significant hindrances to entering the kingdom, to being a disciple of Jesus. You remember the rich young man. And Jesus identified that one point in his life that he just could not overcome, an obstacle insurmountable for him sell all you have, and most importantly, follow me. He couldn't do it. He had too much. Following Jesus was too great a cost. And so in in a way, he was far off. And here you have this man who is close, But what makes this statement so striking, so remarkable, so controversial, so compelling, and so contemporary to us is that this man is near the kingdom of God, but not in the kingdom of God. He is close to having eternal life, but he has not experienced eternal life. Instead of putting judgment on Jesus, Jesus has put judgment on Him. And so though they have much, they agree on. The word is you are not far from the kingdom of God. One of the things that I find fascinating about this passage is what is it that's left? Because there seems to be a sentence there that kind of just concludes it. It doesn't tell us what further exchange. In fact, it tells us there is no further exchange. After that, no one would venture to ask him any more questions. Well, that makes sense because all day long they've been hitting him with questions and he's been just pop, 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 ping ponging them right back. It's not going to work. Trapping Jesus with questions, not effective. They're all going to give up on that. They're going to switch to darker means. They're not going to be able to trap him. They're not going to be able to overcome his intellect. They're not going to be able to out-Bible him or use greater wisdom on him. That much has been made clear. After that, no one would venture to ask him any more questions. But it's in the next two verses where we find that vital difference. And that's my second point. The great agreement in verses 28 to 34, and there was so much they agreed on. But what really matters is this vital difference in verses 35 to 37. And it's this same vital difference that will help you answer the question of, are you a Christian or are you almost a Christian? Verse 35, And Jesus began to say, as He taught in the temple, How is it that the scribes say that the Christ is the Son of David? David himself said, in the Holy Spirit, inspired by the Holy Spirit, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies beneath your feet. Jesus, now, Ralph Martin says, after a day of questions comes the question of the day. Jesus asks a question. And it seems like kind of a technical question from Psalm 110. That's the most quoted psalm in the New Testament. It's quoted in a dozen places probably. And Jesus kind of gets into the weeds of it. He he thinks about the superscription, the the title of the psalm, and its opening lines. And his question is simply, how can the scribes say that the Messiah, the Christ, is the son of David. And so what Jesus is doing here is saying the vital difference for this scribe and for everyone who falls under the voice of Jesus is a messianic question. It's a question about the identity of who Jesus is. So this scribe can affirm the right proportionality of the law of Moses, the important responsibility to neighbor and love for neighbor and commitment for care for others that flows from an affection for the one true God, but can miss the kingdom of heaven if they miss God's appointed Messiah. In other words, The kingdom of heaven can only be seen and accessed and entered through the gate that is the Son of God, also known as the Messiah, also known as the Son of David, also known as the Christ, also known as the Son of God. So how could the scribes say that the Christ is the Son of David when David says, Yahweh, this is Psalm 110, it's quoted here, Yahweh says to Adonai, this is just Lord says to my Lord in, in Greek, but you go back to Psalm 110 and you have Yahweh, the all the self-existent God, covenant God of Israel, saying to Adonai, in an enthronement song, like a song that the kings of Israel would sing as they they came onto the throne, Solomon and David and, and the rest, how could, Jesus is asking them, this most important question, David, who's the king, inspired by the Holy Spirit, say... The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies beneath your feet. Jesus says David calls him Lord. So in what sense is he his son? How could he be both Lord and son? How could... And this is, the, this is the logic of Jesus here. David the King identify the Messiah as his son, like coming from his lineage, but also being his Lord. That's an intractable question for the, the opponents of Jesus. That's a question that's way above their pay grade. It's a gotcha kind of question, and and all their gotcha questions didn't got. Chim. G- gotcha. This one's gotcha. Gotcha is a very difficult word to parse. Jesus isn't denying that the Messiah is the son of David. The Old Testament makes it clear, 2 Samuel 7 in the Davidic covenant, that the Messiah will come from David's royal line. Jesus has already been called in Mark chapter 10 by blind Bartimaeus, who's not blind anymore, so I don't know why we always call him that, the Son of David, Son of David, have mercy on me. Jesus isn't questioning the scribes' understanding of this passage. He's questioning their application of it, that they have an inadequate application of this passage. The question isn't, Is the Messiah David's son? Everybody understood that. The question is, is he only David's son? Is that it? Because that's the expectation. Somebody from David's line will come, raise an army, throw off Rome, and we'll be in our land and we'll be in charge. But these scribes and Pharisees and Sadducees who'd spent their whole lives studying the Bible had missed the blessed hope and expectation of the Messiah that would be both son of David and son of God. So Jesus takes the entirety of the Bible and sums it up and says, the one who will bring you from almost in the kingdom to the full realization and participation in the kingdom is the one that you have rejected and killed his servants, the vineyard parable that this chapter started with, and now you're about to kill the son, kill the Messiah. That's the reality that's in front of all of us. Augustine says Christ is not valued at all unless he is valued above all. And that is the rub in this passage. Here in the temple, Jesus says, how can he be both Lord and Son? What is this messianic identity all about? How can Yahweh say to Adonai in David's words inspired by the Holy Spirit? And the answer is he's not only David's son. He's also God's Son. And the only way you can know that you will be a part of God's kingdom is through Him. The heart of man is the greatest cheat and imposter in the world. And the only one that can overcome that sinful, deceived heart that thinks you're a Christian when you actually are not is the Spirit of God showing you that the question is this. What is your relationship with Jesus? Not with religion. Not with morality. Not with the church. Not yet. But what do you do with Jesus? Because He's not only David's son. He's God's son. And the culmination of the entire revelation of God rests on Him. Friend, if you're almost a Christian... That's because you have not yet believed on the Lord Jesus Christ. You haven't committed your life to being His disciple. You've not turned from your sin and brought those rags to Him to be forgiven. That's the difference. The great difference that only Jesus can make in our lives. So come to Him and find in Him the dawning of the kingdom of God. Find in him the assurance that can only come when you know Jesus, the righteous one, has washed all your sins away. Come to him, the only one who can save you, the one who is the vital difference. Don't be almost a Christian. Almost doesn't count. But come into the kingdom. Answer that ultimate question. What will you do with the one who is David's son and the son of God? because salvation is only found in Him. Father, thank You for Your Word. What trappings religion can be, even blessings like growing up in a church, can be what our our foolish hearts use to trick us and convince us that we don't need the Son of God And so, God, I pray for the moral. And I pray for the religious. And I pray for the church going. And I pray with those who still trifle with all their sin. That you would show them the glory of your Son, even today. That they would see this promised one as the one who has come to unite the vertical love for God with the horizontal love for man. And we find that glory as He hangs on the cross and bridges that gap between you and a sinful humanity. Thank You, God, for Your Word, for revealing Jesus to us. Open blind eyes that they might see. David's Lord and David's son. In His name. Amen.